Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It looks like we can't talk enough about the Munich crisis, that moment in the fall of 1938 when British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, along with his counterparts from France and Italy, met with Hitler and hammered out a peace agreement. Munich has now become a synonym for acquiescence, wrongful appeasement, and even cowardice. Chamberlain returned home to jubilant crowds, relieved that the threat of war had passed, and he told the British public that he had achieved, quote, peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time, end quote. He was challenged by his greatest critic, Winston Churchill, who declared, quote, you were given the choice between war and dishonor, you chose dishonor, and you will have war, end quote. Two new books by British journalists have appeared on these negotiations, as if there was something new to discover. Tim Bovary's Appeasement has just been published, as well as Adrian Phillips' Fighting Churchill, Appeasing Hitler, Neville Chamberlain, Sir Horace Wilson, and Britain's Plight of Appeasement. There are two camps on this issue. The first was that Munich was a symbol of weakness before the Nazis. The others hold that it was inevitable because Western powers were paralyzed by fear and disbelief. It was impossible to believe that Germany, barely 20 years after its defeat in the Great War, would be threatening again. But what about the Canadian attitude in all this? To talk about it with me today is my friend and colleague Robert Tigrob, professor of history at Ryerson University, who has published a book on the subject of appeasement entitled Four Days in Hitler's Germany, Mackenzie King's Mission to Avert a Second World War. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. Robert Tigrob, welcome to the mic. Patrice, uh, thank you for inviting me and thank you for reading the book. <laughs> I'm flattered. It was a great pleasure. You've done something very original with this work. The only book that I can compare it with is Robert Wright's Three Nights in Havana, Pierre Trudeau, Fidel Castro, and the Cold War World. Historians have never given much more than a few pages to the event of Mackenzie King's visit to Berlin in 1937. What did you see in this story that you thought deserved a book-length treatment? Well, first of all, historians generally have no problem in running on at the pen in the mouth about all manner of subjects. Uh, uh, but three nights or three days or four days sounds like a short period of time. But when you put major issues in context and you tell the story of the major players and their experiences and their philosophies and the, the decisions that they're making during these meetings and then the world reaction and long-term consequences, pretty soon you're bumping up against 300 pages. So it's not a real trick uh, if the event itself is significant enough or if it tells enough of a story about the principles and, and uh, the nations involved. So tell us about how did this visit by Mackenzie King come about? What's he doing in Berlin? <laughs> King, yeah, King was uh, in Britain uh, beginning in May for the coronation of uh, King George VI. And uh, London decided that since so many world leaders would be there, that they should have an imperial conference following the coronation, which is something that happened sporadically over the past, well, beginning in late 19th century up until the 1930s. And the issue that was... Uh, vexing them at the time was what to do about Germany. And so with the dominions in the house, so to speak, they decided to kind of put their heads together and come up with some sort of strategy that they hoped would address the problem, contain the problem, um, deal with it in a way that was productive. And so King is there 
And while he's there, he meets the ambassador, uh, the German ambassador to London, uh, Ribbentrop. He had communicated with Ribbentrop prior to this in setting up a bilateral trade agreement with the Germans, which had just passed the house prior to his visit to London and then Germany. And so they already had a bit of a rapport. But he found in Ribbentrop someone who he thought he could really uh, get along with. He found him to be a, a, a kind, uh, polite, you know, uh, well-seasoned gentleman who had done some time in Canada. He, he worked as a champagne salesman in Ottawa. And so they had a bit of a, 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 a context. To, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, Ribbentrop took the occasion to invite King to visit Hitler. And King was absolutely flattered that, you know, such a, a, a portentous a moment that this, this nation at the center of a world conversation would want to talk to him. And so uh, he jumped at the chance and he added Berlin kind of spontaneously at the end of this uh, conference. What was his attitude at this conference? Your book talks a little bit about uh, Mackenzie King's attitude that uh, put him a little bit at odds with some of his colleagues sitting around the table. Yeah, King was the foremost exponent at the conference of doing nothing when it re- with regard to the Nazis in Germany. He did not want a unified uh, uh, imperial uh, policy toward the Germans. Uh, he didn't want to antagonize them. He also was a fierce Canadian nationalist who didn't want to be tied to any what he called empire centralizing schemes, that is, actions which would require Canada to act under the direction of Britain. So there's a couple of things going on there, Canadian nationalism, but also this fear that King had that uh, giving ultimatums to nations and then backing them up with military action was basically tantamount to a declaration of war. So he wanted to, to... find solutions to these problems short of ultimatums. Is he a pacifist? He would be as close to a pacifist, an out-and-out pacifist, as any of the leaders around the table and and far beyond, I think, that table. Well, how do you explain that? How do you explain the the origins? King's King's attitude. Well, everyone had been traumatized by World War I. Um, We can't forget that. I mean, and as I said, the Germans lost two million soldiers in the First World War. Why in heaven's name within a generation, 20 years? I mean, it really is unthinkable, isn't it? Well, and this is what's driving, I think, a lot of the people who are advocating appeasement, that Germany couldn't possibly be planning to launch a war. Uh, King was afraid that diplomatic missteps might lead the world into a kind of cascading series of events that would bring war in much the same way that World War I came about when we had ultimatums and we had troop mobilizations and railroad schedules and all these things kind of conspired to to push nations all at once toward a, a conflagration. So is Ribbentrop actually promising that he'll meet with the Fuhrer? He is. He says, if you come to Germany, I promise you'll have a sit-down with Adolf Hitler. This is something that, that King had contemplated before. About a year earlier, he had resolved to go and visit Hitler and, and to kind of um, suss him out, but also persuade him that war was not the answer. And he was concerned about public opinion. And his uh, top foreign policy advisor, O.D. Skelton, said that you shouldn't give this guy the time of day, more or less. And so King just put it on the back shelf. But then... Here's this opportunity a year later. 
Oscar Skelton, we've talked about this before on this podcast, is very much a Canadian nationalist, is very much a neutralist. He doesn't want to get involved in international um, affairs in the sense that he doesn't want Canada, again, dragged into a war. The experience of the First World War is still very present in his mind. I mean, you know, as I, as I get older, you know, I, I recognize 20 years is nothing. I can't imagine myself in 1937 thinking, my goodness, we're going back to war. We just, we, 20 years ago is nothing. And that's why I think we shouldn't lay this entirely at the feet of King, this mm-hmm. decision, uh, this this uh, bearing towards Germany, because he's getting a lot of pressure from Skelton and a lot of pressure from Lapointe. Uh, Ernest his, Lapointe, his, um, his Quebec lieutenant. Yeah. Who Minister of Justice is warning him that uh, you know any further conflicts involving the British Empire that required Canada to come to the defense of Britain could be the undoing of Canada, and he certainly has a point with that. Yes, and so there are rational reasons. In in retrospect, it looks quite foolish because we know where all of this is going. But yes, from the position of, of of Canadian unity. So King says, "Okay, I'm off to Berlin," and what does he do in Berlin? <laughs> he okay. Uh, Ribbentrop had planned meticulously, uh, down to the minute basically, a very propaganda-laden tour of Germany and environments. And so King was shown uh, a uh, Hitler youth camp and shown the fine specimens being prepared, as we now know, for a continental war. And he was taken to a labor camp. Uh, mandatory labor service was now in effect in Germany. And the labor camps essentially served as a kind of uh, preparatory uh, training for also military service. Although King did not uh, see that in his, his view of the camps. Uh, he met various high-ranking Nazi officials and was given really the royal treatment. And this is something that King uh, reveled in. He was called Your Excellency wherever he went by German leadership, and he and liked that. He he was uh, yeah he was one to be stroked. Well, he's meeting the creme de la creme. He is, yeah. He he has a sit down meeting with uh, Goering, which goes on for over an hour. He meets Hess, Hitler, Ribbentrop. You know, these are the bigwigs. And so again, that gives him the sense that he is at the center of this global conversation, that he's being taken very seriously, and that he feels he has a, a not only a role, but really the central role. He, has, he King had all kinds of mystical beliefs, but he thought he was put on this earth to bring peace, and that this was the opportunity for which he was born. And he's meaning a fellow mystic. In Hitler. Yes. So he thought. I mean, uh, Hitler's mysticism was vastly overrated. In fact, Hitler often railed at the mystical elements of people in his party going back to gods like Wotan and Thor, and he thought this was ridiculous. But King was convinced he was a mystic, and that was about the highest compliment King could pay any other individual. As I said at the outset, this is a remarkable book because you're you're unpacking all sorts of things um, uh, a careful, a careful description of these four days. You come out of this, and what is what is the significance of this event at the end of the day? I mean, did, did it change Canadian foreign policy? Did it move it in a particular direction? What's your thinking? It reaffirmed that Canada's interwar policy would be isolationist. This was a very, very powerful statement of. Canada's desire not to get involved in war, to, to yes, get involved in the, the, the international relations conversation, but above all, to try to prevent an outbreak of, of war, the likes which happened in 1914. 
it was widely covered at the time in the international press, um, but it quickly dissipated in the, the sort of the historical memory. And I think it was probably the realization that King really hadn't done anything. He had moved the needle. As we there say. was no uh, agreement to meet in the future. There was no talk about arms reduction or bringing Germany back to the League of Nations or sitting down with other national leaders. King's philosophy was that if international leaders got to know one another and built up a rapport, the, the rest of it would fall into place, that this was about personal relationships. So become Hitler's friend, Hitler will be brought to Do you think King was satisfied with his visit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was elated when he went home. He started writing letters first to the, all the Germans he met saying, I'm so relieved that uh, all of the stories about you are not true. And he wrote high-ranking British officials and said, uh, war will be averted. I've heard it from the mouths of these trusted gentlemen themselves, whom I'm anticipating to be lifelong friends. He told the Canadian people in a radio address that the world is uh, moving away from this concept of warfare as a means of international relations. I mean, it gives me the sense that King, in a way, paved the way to Munich. He's, he's reinforcing the message that it is possible to achieve peace with Hitler, that Hitler assured him that war was the furthest thing from his mind. This is, again, this is June 1937. So the, the big march of, of 1938 hasn't happened yet. But King is convinced of it and, um, as you say, you know, spreads a little bit that thinking that peace is possible, that Chamberlain's message, his gambit in July, 15 months later, might be in part traceable back to that King visit. I mean, am I exaggerating? Well, it's difficult to say um, exactly what role King had in the eventual Munich conference and, and agreement, but it is certainly the case that King told Hitler that Chamberlain would be a friend to Germany and that he shouldn't fear uh, reprisals from the British prime minister that uh, Chamberlain was especially sympathetic to German needs. And then he went to the British and said, Hitler is not planning an aggressive war, so don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree that those things sunk in, those were exactly what those leaders shouldn't have been hearing because it did set the table for the type of agreement that came. You know, Hitler pushed Chamberlain around and Chamberlain was caught off guard by Hitler's aggression. Let's helicopter up a little bit. What was the attitude of Canadians at this time? I mean, again, I come back to this 20 years. Canadians lost over 60,000 men, uh, 130,000 injured. Nobody wants to go back there. But what's the Canadian attitude towards foreign policy, towards involvement in, in the world? Well, what's your sense? And, you're, and I have to say this to our, to our speakers, uh, to our listeners, I should say, that you're a specialist in the Canadian attitude. You've especially on, on the Cold War. You're a, you're a student of the Canadian attitude towards conflict. Well, what is, what's your sense of the 1930s? King was a, a very reliable conduit of Canadian opinion. That was his, the, the secret of his longevity. Um, we're in an era, era before opinion polling, any sophisticated yes. sense. Yes. And so it's difficult to determine what Canadians made of various issues that were hot-button issues at the time. But there are a couple of measures that can be taken vis-a-vis -vis Germany specifically. In 1936, there are uh, Olympic Games slated for Berlin. And there is intensive debate in Canada about whether or not Canadian athletes should go. And opposition runs very strong, not just from what we might consider the usual suspects, you know, leftist organizations, Jewish groups, obviously would have uh, 
profound concerns about doing anything which would give legitimacy to this to this regime. But even in conservative newspapers, the Calgary Herald running editorials saying that this legitimizing of, of Nazism is, is repugnant and we shouldn't be going. And, and so that's one measure. There, there is certainly an awareness of what's going on in Germany and the crimes against minorities, the murderous rampage against government officials in the night of long knives. So the Canadian attitude is, is, is uh, what would you say, divided? I mean, on, on one hand, nobody wants to go back to war. Nobody wants to go back to fight the Germans. But on the other hand, on your hand you're saying that there was some opinion that uh, – yeah, but then in, the, in the, the following year, there is a debate in parliament about whether to increase the bilateral trade relationship with Germany. And there's one MP that gets up and stands up and says, uh, this is wrong. It's Samuel Factor, who's the first Jewish MP in, in parliament, parliamentary history, uh, Toronto MP. And he says this is a murderous regime that has perpetuated medieval barbarities, he called them against ethnic minorities, and basically asks his colleagues in parliament, do you have a conscience? Mm -hmm. And the response is crickets. We don't. <laughs> so, so it's difficult to pin down at any one moment because at that point, it seemed a, a callous indifference to what was going on in e Germany. Either way, King, as you say, who's very politically astute feels as though he's he's legitimate in going to Berlin and that he is likely to carry the public attitude that, of, of, a public attitude of support if, and if he, he goes. he tells Hitler that I have the biggest majority in Canadian history, so, <laughs> you know, and he's not one to be modest about his achievements. Right. But, but he did, he did, and, and the Liberal Party represented a broad consensus of people all across the country at the time and also reflected, I think, the anti-Semitism which blunted some of the criticism of what should have been directed at this regime. Let's talk, let's change track for a second here. And I've got to ask you the, the, the classic Champlain Society question. Um, what were your sources? Were you satisfied with the material, the archival material uh, made available to you? Yeah, a lot of this was driven by King's own diary, which is available online and searchable, which is tremendous. It's and wonderful. It's an <laughs> endless trove of um, observations, some of them quite prescient and some of them absolutely nutty. Um, and then uh, I looked at his letters, which are held at the uh, Library and Archives Canada as well, and he's communicating with various British officials and German officials. And very late in the game, it was actually after I submitted the manuscript to the press, I stumbled upon a reference to uh, a Harry Creer. Who is that? How you say the name? Creer? 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 Okay. okay. Creer. Creer. R. C R E R A R. Creer. Our listeners will correct us. Uh, he's uh, tell us about Harry Creer. Yeah, he's director of military operations and intelligence, and he's along for the ride at the Imperial Conference. And he decides also to make a visit to Nazi Germany about two weeks before King. Mm -hmm. King went to Scotland to visit relatives in the meantime, and then went over to Germany. And, and Creer goes directly there, and he comes up with a very, very different report. And I stumbled upon this report, and at almost every stage of the way. Uh, this report is is countering what King will say in his report when he publishes it later. And you lay it out beautifully. It's a it's a point counterpoint. It's, and it goes to the issue of should King have known better? Mm. And because people say, well, you know, he was given a tour, and you know, the Nazis showed him some things, and they didn't show him others, and other people might have been duped in that situation too. But here's a guy from Canada, part of the same 
you know, government official. Uh, but a military man. A military man. He's a First World War veteran. Mm-hmm. He'd seen what war had done and he knows – he has a good sense about preparations for war and when he sees them coming. And he sees war happening, doesn't he? He's, in his report, he identifies a whole list of reasons why he thinks war is on the horizon and he predicts that it will be about two years away. And this is in June 1937, so he was off by a couple of months. So what's your take on William Lyon Mackenzie King? What I mean, so you, 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 you took a bath in his diaries. How do you describe him? My opinion did not improve on King. I mean, I already had some qualms about King uh, with regard to their standard uh, complaints about his indecisiveness and his desire for re-election above all and his ability to maneuver, to hold on to power. And, you know, some of these things also point to the, the, the skills of a very you know, crafty politician. But in this instance, uh, he missed every sign and wonder along the road to destruction. And so, I mean, King is frequently praised for his political acumen, but it certainly had limits. And in situations like these, especially when he's in a foreign country and he's getting a lot of flattery, and he thinks that the fate of the world is in his hands and that Canada's playing center stage, there's all kinds of reasons for blind spots, and they all kind of converged in this sort of perfect storm in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And he came back with a a report which reflected not very well on his ability to process information and to predict the future. Um, At the end of the day, what is the significance of this event, do you think? Was this an important event? I mean, obviously it's an important event, but what was the significance of the event in terms of Canadian foreign policy? I think... Was it a mistake or was it was this a good idea or a bad well, idea? Well, King, I think, should have gone to Germany. That there's To be able to talk to a, a leader that seems bent on messing with the inter- international order and to try to talk them out of some of these maneuvers, I think is commendable. It's an early example of symmetry, isn't it? It is. (laughs) But at the same time, King did not raise issues that should have been raised about the treatment of minorities. I mean, we we go to China today and there's always this sort of maybe perfunctory, but, you know, statement about human rights and, you know, and then we'll get on to the trading relationship. And so... Yeah, it's it's a visit that is defensible, but the outcome is questionable. Questionable, and perhaps dis- disastrous if it indeed did give Hitler the idea that Chamberlain was a pushover, or that gave Chamberlain the idea that Hitler would not resort to war, which was King's primary themes. Mm-hmm. Are people listening to him? It's difficult to say, but he's he wasn't he wasn't pushing back against the the, the course of events. So, so Rob, at the end of the day, was King hurt or helped by this visit to Berlin? At the time, he wasn't hurt. In fact, there was broad public support for the visit, almost across party lines to a, to a person in parliament. Uh, when appeasement was kind of codified by Munich, there was wild celebrations across Canada, and King himself took some of the credit for this. Uh, and it's only in retrospect that historians have uh, taken a, a 
somewhat more uh, jaundiced look at what had gone, gone on. And I mean, of course, too, we know what happens. And so it's very easy to say this was a disastrous plan from the beginning. No one knew how it would turn out at the time. Are we in a moment where we are rethinking William Lyon Mackenzie King? The, he seems to be having another moment. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, there's, there's a, there is, I'm not going to call it a flurry of books, but there are certainly a number of books that have come out over the last few years focusing on King, and it's, I think it's to be welcomed. I don't know about the others, but my focus was spurred in part by the McLean survey in 2016, which put him at the top of the prime minister's Very ranking much. in Canada. And I think yeah. those that maybe had an issue with that decided to, to dig a little deeper. He's actually come out number one twice. Twice out of three, three times. three times, yeah. uh, only to be beaten once by McDonald, I think. I think he was third in that one, but just... Within the margin of error, behind McDonald and uh, uh, Laurier was first in that one. Yes. Deservedly so, in my mind. Thank you very much for coming, Rob. I really appreciate your taking the time. It was a pleasure, Patrice. That was Robert Tigrob, the author of Four Days in Hitler's Germany, Mackenzie King's Mission to Avert a Second World War. It was published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University on September 30th, 2019 and ably produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.